Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. We have a deal! At least that's what the Uniparty is saying on the debt situation. Well, what does that mean for you? I'll talk about it on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that. But you can also click on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com, throw a few pennies my way. You can click on the super thanks button underneath the video if you're watching on YouTube. You can throw a few pennies my way that way. Or go to Spotify for podcasters. You can also support the show there. Lots of great ways to support the show financially. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Let people know you love it. Leave it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. That way, we get more eyes and ears on the show. All right. Well, let's talk about this debt limit agreement. I did a, a podcast episode on this a couple of weeks ago, and actually it was last week, and I talked about how uh, whatever happens, the Uniparty is going to get their way. And I mentioned that what essentially was going to happen with the Biden administration, this comes down to executive government. I was talking about the 14th Amendment and how Biden was threatening to use that to simply increase the debt limit unilaterally and how that was a distortion of the 14th Amendment. But I also mentioned that the real problem for Republicans was going to be the political game. You see, the Democrats play it very well. The Republicans don't. But I also cautioned you and I said, look, the Republicans really don't want to cut spending. They just want to spend it on what they want to spend it on, the money. They don't really want to raise taxes. The Democrats would be willing to raise taxes because they fully understand that um, that works well for them politically. Right? You tax the rich, you soak the rich, and you pay for social programs. Republicans just want to print and borrow and pay for defense. I mean, this is essentially what you have. So you have two parties that aren't really dedicated to any kind of real, uh, real spending cuts or real deficit reduction. They don't want it. And that's been the case since really the 1980s with the Reagan administration. There was actually a book that uh, I was assigned as an undergraduate uh, in, um, in college in the 1990s. It was in a political science course, and the communist professor, he was an open communist, he actually said things like, I swear to Marx, and stuff like that. But he assigned this book on deficit politics. In fact, that was the, that was the title of the book. And the general thesis of the book was that it really wasn't necessary to ever balance the budget. It wasn't really necessary to ever not have a deficit. You run a deficit every year, you just pile it up, and who cares? And that's the modern monetary theory people that... Well, you just keep printing money, and it doesn't matter. As long as inflation goes, and you still have an increase in wages. Remember, the Democrats are always pushing for an increase 
minimum wage or whatever it is, because they know that even when you increase that, inflation is going to be there. And But you're just going to see prices go up, up, up. That's okay to them because you keep pumping money into the economy. Now, of course, there are people that work out very well with that, generally the people at the top who are getting the money first. This is why you see rich people with much more money in an inflationary period, and then all the other schlubs underneath them are struggling to make ends meet because the money hasn't filtered down yet. So the Democrats, fully aware of inflation, it's already there. They just want to have the minimum wage and other things keep pace with it because they're fine with inflation. It doesn't matter. There isn't any need to have some type of society where inflation doesn't exist. We've gotten to the point where these arguments in the 19th century over you know, 100, a dollar, 100 cents for a dollar's work doesn't really matter anymore. Uh, in fact, when you look at the late 19th century and the NDP, the Gold Democrats, what they were saying, what they were arguing is that inflation was crushing working people because you did a dollar's worth of work, but you only got 50 cents in pay or 75 cents in pay. And so when you, when you pumped silver into the economy in a way that was out of whack with the ratio, well, it created an environment of, of uh, inflation, of course, and also where you didn't have your pay correspond to the amount of work that you did. So I mean, we can see it everywhere. You know, prices are up all over the place. Uh, you know, and people are doing things to try to compensate for that. Businesses are trying to hold prices, but yet they're charging it for the credit card transactions and all these kind of things because, well, um, that's what happens when you're in an inflationary uh, uh, cycle. Well, what we're seeing with this budget deal is that there really isn't any deal. And I mentioned the Republicans were going to cave. They were going to cave on it because of politics. And you started seeing some of this last week. The Democrats started running uh, scare tactics. They started saying, well, you know, if we don't get a deal, Grammy, Granny's not going to get her Social Security and Medicare. If we don't get a deal, well, children, uh, when they go back to school, are going to starve because we won't have enough money to pay for school lunches. If we don't get a deal, then your police protection is going to suffer, if you even believe in that. If we don't get a deal in any of these things, people are going to be hurt. But namely, they were going after seniors because that's the greatest scare tactic. Seniors, these people are going to suffer. These people that are on Social Security, they're on unemployment, whatever it is, they're not going to get their check. They didn't mention all of the United States service members who are also not going to get their check because that's not their voting base. So this is a, this is a falsehood, though. It doesn't have to be that way. The United States government has enough revenue coming in every month to continue to, to service the debt. They just wouldn't have enough money for discretionary spending. The United States wouldn't default. You see, they would make a choice. They, well, we're not going to pay our debt, but we're going to pay all these obligations to Social Security and these kind of things. There, there's a choice there. They could have serviced the debt for a long period of time and then wrangled over spending. But that's not what they would choose to do because that would inflict the least amount of pain. What the Democrats would want to do is inflict the most amount of pain. So the Biden administration, of course, is the executive branch. They execute the laws of Congress. And if Congress says spend X amount of dollars... They would continue to do that even if it meant defaulting on the debt. Why? Because they know they win that battle politically. And so what you've seen is the Republicans cave on virtually everything. Now, this bill has some pretty interesting or potential bill because it hasn't been passed yet. It has some pretty interesting things in there. According to Thomas Massey, if they don't get a deal done, they get sequestration, uh, which means that we're going to start seeing a 1% reduction in federal spending. 1%. So what we've gotten in this bill is an increase in federal spending. It's not really reducing the deficit. It's not reducing the debt. It's not doing any of that. 
zero. There's been a relatively flat increase in spending, uh, domestic spending, uh, over the next few years. And there's been a massive increase in defense spending. You see, remember, Republicans want to spend money on what they want to spend it on. This is why I've said before, the Uniparty is dangerous. They don't really care about uh, the monetary system. I mean, there are people in the Republican Party that do, but most of them don't. They don't even know anything about it. All they know is that they want to bring the butter or the guns back to their constituents. If you look at my district, you've got an individual who is so invested in the military-industrial complex, that's all he cares about. Bringing back uh, defense spending dollars to his district so that he can say he did something to help the people here. And that would be pumping money into this area. I mentioned before, uh, my state, there's there's been uh, plenty of uh, articles written about this, how much money this state receives in defense industry spending. It's an industry. It's it's no it's not like it's, it's unlike uh, not like uh, you know it's any other industry right it's it is what it is and so this is a federal industry that pumps money into the economy and the state becomes dependent on this right I said before the states are a real issue here if the states could somehow get off the cash well in the in the cash drip well then you could have a situation where perhaps we could see real spending cuts but that's not going to happen anytime soon. The states enjoy this, whether it's uh, education dollars, whether it's defense dollars. Uh, they enjoy the money because they can say they're doing X, Y, and Z for the constituents. But of course, it's all coming with a cost. And that is a tremendous amount of debt and inflation. It, it comes with a cost. The Democrats just don't care. So what we've seen is a bill that increases spending. It lifts the debt ceiling. Uh, the government can keep borrowing. There isn't really any kind of... Uh, of deal here that Republicans got really anything they wanted. And this is where conservatives are saying, well, we, we basically got nothing out of this. And I would say they're 100% accurate. I mean, this is what I said last week. The Republicans aren't going to give you anything. If you continue to vote Republican and you're a conservative, you're just you're doing the very definition of insanity because you're never going to get anything different. In fact, I would say that, you know, real conservatives in America don't have a party anymore. They haven't had one for a very long period of time. And I'm not so certain that a third party would even be useful. But what can be useful, of course, is working at the state and local level and trying to get your state in line and then saying, you know, we don't want X, we don't want these things. You can keep your money. We don't want it here. And then if voters would start doing that, well, then the entire system would change. From the bottom up, you could change America. And that's important. Somebody sent me an article about George Soros pumping money into local campaigns. I talked about this that on, this on this podcast. He's pumping money into school boards because he realizes what's at stake here. The school boards are important. School board elections, city council elections, county council elections. These are the things that are really going to sway the American political system one way or the other. The political culture. They're a reflection, these smaller entities, of the culture of that area. And if Soros can somehow get into these elections and change the culture there, well, then it changes everything. This is exactly what the progressives did in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. People don't realize it. They didn't start at the top. I mean, we always focus on Teddy Roosevelt and uh, you know the progressive movement that way. But the real progressive movement began at the bottom. These people join things like the Rotary Club 
and uh, you know they, they got into local politics. And all they did was start pushing the progressive agenda there. And when they did that, it started changing everything. So this is why I've said, think locally, act locally. You're just following what the progressives did in the 19th century. If you can do that, join the Rotary Club, get involved in civic groups, get involved in your local government. That changes everything from the bottom up, and you can have some real reform. Now, I want to get into this article that's written at Bloomberg about the debt, uh, debt situation. Uh, and this was published um, on, let's see, Sunday. And it says, getting a U.S. debt limit deal is one thing. Overcoming entrenched political divisions and time-consuming procedural hurdles to pass the legislation before a June 5 default deadline is another challenge altogether. Now, again, I mentioned there wouldn't have to be any default. The United States government could pay its debt obligations right now without any problems on the amount of revenue it has coming in every single month from taxpayers around the United States, from your paychecks, from your, from your payroll taxes, from your income taxes you get taken out of your paychecks. It could do it without any problem. The issue is, of course, discretionary spending. It wouldn't have enough money to pay that. But it has revenue every single month. So it has to borrow to pay the discretionary spending. It, it uses the revenue to service the debt. So the issue is not the debt. The issue is the discretionary spending on all kinds of things across the board, guns and butter. It's on all kinds of things. That's the issue. The United States government wouldn't have enough money to pay all of the discretionary spending, so it would have to make some tough decisions. What are we going to pay? What are we not going to pay? The United States wouldn't default. It just wouldn't pay for all these social services. And, of course, that's politically messy because what happens if Grandma does not get her Social Security check if the Democrats decide to go that way? What happens if your soldiers don't get their check? What happens if we can't buy bullets to go and... Uh, or aircraft to go uh, build those so they can go sell them to the Ukraine. I mean, what happens if we don't do that? You see, that's the issue. What happens if we don't have enough money for you know, Pell Grants and other things that go and to funnel into the education system or to pay these big grants to schools to, uh, for federal dollars into these school systems? Well, what happens there? You see, it's interesting. They said Jan uh, June 1 was it, and then they moved it to June 5th, and they so Yellen keeps moving this thing out. She could keep moving it because we're not going to default the United States government would pay its debts, but it wouldn't pay the things that are discretionary. So what we're seeing in a deal is we're going to raise the debt limit so we can keep borrowing to pay the discretionary spending while we keep servicing the debt. Now, at some point in the future, if we keep doing this, we're going to get to a point where there won't be any discretionary spending because we won't have enough money to do it. It won't be there. It says, the deal struck Saturday night by President Joe Biden and Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Now, it's interesting that Biden is striking a deal. This should be a deal in Congress, and Biden should just simply sign the legislation as long as it's constitutional. But we have the president acting as chief legislator with the House of Representatives. You see, this is where we are in America. We've got executive government. Federalist 69, I can just go back to a Hamilton position. Federalist 69 said we wouldn't have this. The president never had the power of the purse. What exactly has happened here? The president has power of the purse because he says, if you don't do what I want, I'm vetoing the legislation. That creates power of the purse. If you don't spend the money on the things I want you to spend the money on, well, that's the power of the purse. This is not what the founding generation wanted out of the executive branch. But we don't really have an opposition party that's willing to stand up for these things and just do what it has to do. Now, the Democrats, of course, control the Senate. 
I think if the, if the Republicans controlled the Senate, this might have gone a little differently because Biden couldn't really have done anything but the, except veto it. And then we really would have had an impasse. I mean, so uh, I'm not so certain, you know, what's going to happen here, but we have the president acting as chief legislator, the House basically following in line, and then we've got to get this thing through the Senate, which the piece talks about. So the deal struck by Biden and McCarthy offers a lot for the two parties not to like, from expanded work requirements for food stamps opposed by Democrats to higher spending levels than conservatives demanded. So you got to have work requirements to get food stamps and other things. I mean, this again, this is what we're battling over, uh, you know, how much money we're going to spend on what. There's going to be a 1% increase in spending no matter what. This is baseline budgeting. We're always going to get a 1%, 1% increase, 1% increase. You look at the bill, and there's an increase in spending every year. When they talk about cuts, they're not actually talking about cuts. They're talking about cuts in the growth. That's all they're doing. With just over a week until the U.S. risks running out of cash to pay its bills, the two leaders must now convince enough members of their respective parties that the agreement hashed out by a small group of negotiators is a better deal than the global economic consequences of a default. Again, it doesn't have to be a default. They just don't have enough money not to pay their bills. No, no, no. They don't have enough money to pay for all the discretionary spending. There wouldn't have to be a default at all. Biden and McCarthy in separate appearances on Sunday projected confidence they would muster the votes to win congressional approval. McCarthy claimed 95% of House Republicans are very excited by the deal. Some members of the ultra-conservative House Freedom Caucus ratcheted up criticism of the deal Sunday, though it was unclear whether their hostility would broaden to wider Republican opposition or harden into a campaign to oust the Speaker. Representative Chip Roy of Texas tweeted Sunday that fellow Republicans haven't been educated yet on the deal's shortcomings. They will be. He said, shortly after the deal was announced Saturday, Ralph Norman of South Carolina called it insanity, and Dan Bishop of North Carolina responded with an emoji of a face vomiting. Now look at where these three people come from, Texas, South Carolina, and North Carolina. I'm going to do a show uh, this week on a question that was proposed about what would the United States look like had Calhoun, uh, had, had slavery ended peacefully and Calhoun's ideas become ascendant. Well, I think we have to look at... Um, something, a, a historic document. I'll talk about that. But notice that the South, again here, this is what people have talked about the South. The South is the block. It's the opposition to what all the progressives want. It's almost as if, you know, the South should have been an independent place. And maybe the United States could have had what it's wanted and the South could have gotten what it's wanted. Maybe that, I mean, I don't know. Maybe some, somebody should have tried that at one point or something. I don't know. Still, there were early signs of openness to the deal, even from some of the GOP's right flank. Representative Warren Davison applauded some impressive wins, but said he would wait to see the bill's text before making up his mind. A time-consuming, last-minute revision of, of a or a failure on the House floor risks a market dive, as happened when the 2008 bank bailout legislation failed to pass. McCarthy has said he'd abide by a 72-hour rule to allow lawmakers to review legislation and is planning to a House vote on Wednesday. In the Senate, any one lawmaker can tie up legislation and force procedural votes. Utah Republican Mike Lee has already said he would do just that if he doesn't like spending levels in the bill. That leaves little room for failure or time for revisions. If Congress is to pass the legislation before June 5th, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's revised X date. Again, I think she would push that back. And she'd push it back because they can service the debt. The issue is spending. The issue is... Uh, how much 
spending, what they're going to have to do is not spend on some of the discretionary stuff. They're going to have to start sending out IOUs because this eventually they'll get it and they'll just backdate it, you see. Republican Patrick McHenry, one of McCarthy's chief negotiators, acknowledged as much on Saturday, saying it would be a severe challenge to get the bill passed by the deadline. While Biden and McCarthy are managing the clock, they also need to manage their party's caucuses in each chamber. Biden needs to manage the party's caucuses. When is the president the chief legislator? This should be up to the members of the House or the Senate and their own party to do this, not Joe Biden. But this is what we have. We have the president acting as chief legislator. This is why I wrote a whole book, Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America, and it's all about executive government. I could have put almost every single one of them in there. There's only a handful that didn't do this kind of stuff. Every single one. House Democratic Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, and Senate GOP Leader Mitch McConnell will be tasked with mobilizing arm twisters to convince the flanks. But the deal ultimately belongs to Biden and McCarthy. We'll have to cobble together a coalition of centrists to support it. Well, why wouldn't Jeffries and Schumer and McConnell and McCarthy be on with this? No, it has to be Biden who's doing this. Again, executive government. It's going to be hard work for the president, said South Carolina Representative Jim Clyburn, the Democrats' former top vote counter. Hard work for the president. Hard work for the president. As I'm actually uh, uh, reading this, there are some videos. You know, NBC Nightly News has got old people on there. Well, if they don't get this debt ceiling, they can't pay their prescription drugs. As they're showing them vacationing all over the world and stuff, but they can't pay for their prescriptions if they don't get this deal. You see, they're they're in they're here they're there. Uh, now, though it could have been before, right, when they had some money or whatever. But if they don't get this, they can't pay for their prescriptions because you know they won't have the money to do it. I mean, this is this is where we are. Uh, the optics are not very good with that, but that's that's the kind of politics that are going to be played by the Democrats and, of course, in the mainstream media because they're they're the soundboard. For the Democrats. I mean, they just simply trumpet whatever the Democrats want them to do. The two-year budget agreement cuts far less spending than the $4.8 trillion in reductions the House put on the table at the start of the talks. It also gives heartburn to progressives who have already who already have agitated that Biden doesn't hasn't been vocal enough on the deal. Uh, they're still going to get spending increase. He's, he's cuts $4.8 trillion in reductions. No, no, no. That's reductions in the growth of these things. Now, I think some of the cases they were trying to actually physically cut stuff. For example, the money that was going to be spent on the IRS was $80 billion or something like that. Well, they cut a billion out of that. So look at, I mean, look at it this way. The IRS budget is still going up, just not to $80 billion. It might go up to, what, $79.8 billion or $79.2 billion, whatever it is. 78.2, whatever it is. I don't know. Whatever the amount they're going to cut, it's still going to go up a tremendous amount, but it's just not going to go up as much. That's a cut. That's a win. They cut it. You see, they cut the growth, not the actual spending itself. This is what happens. And the same thing with defense spending. I mean, defense spending is going to go up. All these things are going to go up. I'd use the RS thing as an example because people have talked about it. It's still going to go up. You're still going to get more money for all of these things. It's just not as much as the Democrats wanted. So where's the victory for the Republicans? There's not one at all. It's the Democrats still win if you're talking about you know what they want compared to what the Republicans supposedly want. But I said it's the uniparty. They all want the same thing. 
We know anytime we sit and negotiate with two parties that you've got to work with both sides of the aisle. So it's not 100% what everybody wants, McCarthy told reporters. It's really not 100% of anything. The Republicans really got nothing out of this. Nothing. Not helping matters for McCarthy is former President Donald Trump, to whom many of these conservatives are loyal. Trump, who has been in regular contact with the Speaker, has said that the U.S. should, not, should default rather than accept a bad deal. Trump is saying we should default, not accept a bad deal. But again, it doesn't have to default. It just can't spend all the stuff. But it's funny that you know Trump is saying these things because I think if Trump was president, he'd be doing the exact same thing. You would see a, a deal and the spending would go up. That's what would happen. Trump is It's easier for Trump to say this on the campaign trail because there's no political ramifications for it. And that's what the Republicans often are. You know, they say a lot on the campaign trail, then they get into power and they see the politics working against them so they just don't do what they want. Jeffrey as well has his own challenge, getting 106 or more Democrats to back the deal, even with Biden's impromptu on it. Democrats like Rosa DeLario, the senior member of, on the Appropriations Committee, have complained publicly about being sidelined and have condemned any reductions to social programs as unacceptable. Congressional Progressive Caucus head, head uh, Pamelia J. Paul has said there will be protests in the streets of the deal cut social services. Again, a threat of violence. Because these protests aren't going to be peaceful. Protests in the streets. So the Democrats are threatening, threatening violence. They're saying Granny's going to get thrown off the cliff. They can't get their medications. People are going to starve. I mean, this is, this is Democrat politics. It's all over the place. It's threats. It really is, in some way, emotional and physical terrorism, what these Democrats are doing. But this is, this is their M.O. So you've got a bunch more of this stuff, and... I mean, essentially, you know, this is this is how the Democrats play politics. On Sunday, Jay Paul told CNN's State of the Union Democratic leaders should be concerned whether they can get votes from the party's left flank. Representative Jim Himes of Connecticut, who is in the, in the Progressive Caucus, said on Fox News Sunday that it's not a bill that's going to make any Democrats happy. So again, look, we have three people from the South, Texas, North Carolina, South Carolina. This bill stinks for the conservative side. Who's saying on the progressive side? Connecticut. Connecticut, we still see the sectional divisions in the United States. This is why the Union, the Federal Republic, was designed the way that it was to absorb those problems. You see, what we're wrangling over is stuff that's all unconstitutional anyways. We're wrangling over things that the states should have been dealing with and handling at their own level. From the beginning, this is Tench Cox. This is what he said when he was... Uh, arguing for the ratification of the Constitution, the federal government can only spend on these things. The states had to take care of all of this stuff. But what we're seeing in all of this, of course, is unconstitutional spending, one-size-fits-all government from the Uniparty facing problems on both ends because we've got New Englanders and progressives in many states, generally not in the South, but in many states who don't like this stuff. And then we've got Conservatives in the South saying, well, we don't like this stuff either because it's not what we want. So you're seeing a clash of political cultures. This is why think locally, act locally really matters. If Connecticut wanted these things, Connecticut should pay for it for their own people, not rely on everyone else in the United States to pay for them. That's what was argued in the founding generation. The expanded work requirements for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program could pose a challenge for Jeffries, who has called such requirements a non-starter for House Democrats. 
So you can't, you can't expand. You can't make these people work. They just got to get their money without having to work. Again, you go back to Virginia and John Smith, and if you don't work, you don't eat. Even the, but even the pilgrims did this. I mean, this was something that you, know, you had to work to eat. You had to private plot of land. If you didn't cultivate that, well, then you're going to starve. The arm-twisting challenge is exacerbated for House leaders because most lawmakers are out of town for a holiday weekend or not due to return until Monday night or Tuesday morning. That's always more difficult when they're away, McCarthy acknowledged. I mean, these people, they're out of town, they're on vacation. Uh, so, you know, all of them are tied into social media. There's electronic stuff now. I mean, they can all read this stuff. And there's telephones. I mean, all these things are going on right now. Right now. Uh, as as uh, as I'm recording this uh, right now. Assuming the House passes the bill in the first try, it'll head to the Senate around midweek. Their days of procedural day, uh, delays are likely, if Lee makes good on his threat, to hold things up. That easily takes voting right into the weekend and the U.S. right to the brink. Again, the brink of what? The brink of not being able to pay its discretionary spending. It'll pay the debt. I, I'm telling you right now that this is all bluff and bluster. They would pay the debt. What they wouldn't be able to do is pay these these old people that you know can't get their first prescription drugs. I mean, that would be the things the Democrats would let happen because the news cycle would be: Granny can't get her high blood pressure medication. Um, you know, we can't. Uh, uh, this person who's uh, you know in a wheelchair can't get their Social Security spending, their Social Security money because well, we don't have it. That would be the political fallout. It would be that. And, and Republicans don't want to own that because they think it doesn't bode well for them in elections. And Democrats know it works. They're going to inflict as much pain on their own constituents as possible so that those people go and vote out Republicans. That's the whole point. I remember back in the 90s when the federal government shut down and some people missed paychecks. And I lived in an area where we had a lot of federal employees and how that worked. And people were very upset about that because they weren't getting their paycheck. But again, uh, the United States government has a tremendous amount of revenue every month. Every single month. It just it, it has to allocate it the way that the executive branch decides. And if the executive branch wants to pay the debt, they can still do it. They just can't pay everything else. And that would be painful for a lot of their constituents, which I think they would be fine with. All right. Think locally, act locally, take care of the stuff at the local level, sweep around your own back door, get involved in local politics, start thinking about these things there. If you like these kind of services, pay for them yourself. And if everyone did that, we wouldn't need the federal government to do any of this stuff. It would all just be superfluous. And I think that's the, that's the point of a federal republic. All right. See you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.